So let us uh, read uh, selective verses from the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. As you notice, uh, there are the 144,000 and there are is the innumerable multitude. So it has a lot of difficulties of understanding, but I hope we'll be able to share with you what I believe the Bible tells us. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind would blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, when you read those, um, those tribes... Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin, you notice that there are two missing, Ephraim and Dan. And I'd like to share something with that, uh, about that, of course, with you. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that know what a good number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed with white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed with the glory of this chapter. And we ask you that it may become abundantly clear to us what it is all about but even more so, that we may belong to the elect, to that innumerable company, so that when finally the judgment comes, we will join them for all eternity. But that, Lord, is your purpose for this world, that there is going to be a church, the bride of Jesus, a heavenly city, and we thank you that the book of Revelation tells us about that. And I ask you that it will be an encouragement, an exhortation, and also a self-examination for us as we turn out to that word to open it up. And Holy Spirit, guide us in understanding and then acting upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we know that the book of Revelation is not an easy book. Uh, the other day I uh, read uh, somebody with whom I violently and vehemently disagree that Revelation really doesn't give us anything more than what the rest of the Bible tells us, so you can ignore it if you, uh, if you wish. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have news for you. It is the crowning piece of the New Testament. It all turns to the book of Revelation in a powerful and glorious fashion. Now, the book of Revelation has a theme, namely Christ and the church. It is, first of all, in the introduction, described what is the church, seven churches. 
and you have seven pluses and seven minuses. So if you want to move on, you better embrace the pluses and you better stay away from the minuses. That is the introduction. Then the conclusion is when the church is perfect, the heavenly city and a bride. Now what is it? A bride? No, it's a city. Well, this is part of prophecy. It always talks about the future in terms of today. And so the most glorious terminology that John was capable of is applied to the church. It is a woman. Glorious. No, it's a church. Powerful. Well, what it's going to be exactly, we don't know until it comes. Because that is the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is that the point is clear, but it's a little foggy in the details. All right? And that's always the case. If I may give you an example, if I would have promised, uh, prophesied the computer age a hundred years ago, how do you think I would have, uh, what, what would I, how would I have prophesied it? Well, there's a valley with mountains all around it, and all of a sudden, all kinds of paper came across uh, the, the, the mountains and filled the valley with information. Well, that would be the computer age. Now, the terminology, of course, is foggy. But once the computer age would have come, they would have said to me, Henry, now we understand what you're talking about, all right? So that is how prophecy operates. Secondly, it is not only a book of prophecy, according to the first chapter, it is also an apocalypse. Now, prophecy talks about the future in terms of today, but apocalypse shows the future in facts of today. In other words, it uh, talks about an, um, an, um, an animal, like a, a horse, with scorpion tails and with women's hair. You see what I mean? Uh, so uh, that is, the apocalypse is visionary, and, a, and a, a prophecy is more verbal, and we find both in the book of Revelation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in addition to the introduction and the conclusion, there are two main panels. First of all, how does the church operate in the flow of world history? Chapter 4 through 11. And how does the church operate in facing its enemies? In the chapter 12 through 20. I will not talk about the enemies at this time because uh, that is not my chapter. The chapter is in that first main panel. How is the church operating in the flow of history? And in that section, in that panel, there are two main sections. First of all, the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, which give the seven judgments. Now, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 7 follows the seals. And there's also something that follows the trumpets. And what follows both of them, I call an intermezzo. And my main intermezzo is after the seals. And the, the second intermezzo, I will just mention it in passing, is after the trumpets. Now, the trumpets give incredible judgments. In the heavens, on the earth, the water, everything is, is, is under the judgment of God. Now, in the chapter 6, we find the seals. And that is the pattern of world history. The pattern of world history, ladies and gentlemen, there are the four horses. Now, the four horses are economic prosperity, War, famine, and death. Now, I was born in the Netherlands, and we saw the war horse, all right? And the famine horse, and the death horse. That's how I grew up. Then I came to the United States, and I saw the economic horse. And then I went to Africa, and again and again, I saw the war horse 
and a famine horse and a death horse. And ladies and gentlemen, that cycle continues all through world history. Now, under the fifth seal, the people under the altar cry out, when are we going to be avenged? Now, ladies and gentlemen, under which horse would you like to live better? Would you like to live under economic prosperity horse? Under the war horse? Under the famine horse? Or under the death horse? And everybody says economic prosperity, economic prosperity. But let me tell you something. Satan is after the church under whatever horse you live. And life under the white horse is a lot more dangerous than the life under the war horse, the famine horse, and the death horse. Because when you live under the economic prosperity horse, you got it made. Now why in the world would you need God? Why in the world would you need Jesus? And that, of course, is the horror of our American situation. Now, it is very inflated because we only live because we borrow money from others. 22 million billion trillion dollars in debt. Ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, if this ever will dry up, do you know that we add to our national debt every year a trillion dollars? Now, we are older and so it's not going to hurt us as much because we die before it will collapse. But ladies and gentlemen, if China ever does not buy our debt any longer, you know what's going to happen. The interest rates are going to rise up, rise. Secondly, expansion is going to be stopped and it's going to be curtailed and we are going to get a lot of unemployment. And most likely, there will be 10, 15, 20, 30 percent if it ever collapses. So, ladies and gentlemen, Satan is after us under the economic horse. He is after us under the war horse, the death horse, and the famine horse. After us, after us, after us. And then, the last, the sixth seal, there is the judgment of God. And if you take a look at what the Bible says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now that most gentle of all animals, the Lamb, will be filled with wrath. And then the question, who can stand? And chapter 7 is the answer to that question. If you don't understand the horror of the judgment, who can stand? Hide us, O mountains. Cover us, O hills. Ladies and gentlemen, that wrath must be awful. Now it was already predicted at the time of the flood. I don't know how many people lived at that time, but the earth was at least five, 6,000 years old, 10,000 years old. And it is very possible that there were millions of people on this earth. I wouldn't be surprised there were 10, 10 15, 20, 100 million people. Uh, of course, I cannot prove that, but I know that when I went to Uganda in 1983, there were 16 million Ugandans, and now, barely thir a little over 30 years later, there are 36 million. Ah, there's Nicholas. And I told you that you were the one who asked me to preach on it. So I decided to do it anyway. 
even though you're not there. And I thank you that you were not uh, uh, stopped by a cop or got into an accident and you have arrived here. Any rate, any rate, that wrath is awful. 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 If you and I had been conceived even in one second before the flood, he would have drowned us too, even in the womb of our mother. And they yelled at Noah, let us, Noah, let us come in. And God might have stated to them, well, for 120 years, I preach righteousness to you. And you ignored it. You ignored it, ignored it. Now there's even more depth perspective when we take a look at the first seven churches that Jesus addressed. Do you know that two of them are already gone? Only two of them got a clean bill of health. And three of them were thoroughly compromised. And John MacArthur says the church has never been different and never will be different. Now at one time I was a pastor in California and we had seven pastors in a Bible study once a month and I had just read this and I said, brothers, I have a question. If out of the seven Two of them are gone. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. And you're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Three of them are compromised. And only two of them get a clean bill of health. And the Bible says, who can stand? Do you think that it is a pattern it also applies to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We are seven pastors. I do not say it necessarily applies to us seven, but do you think it also applies to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? And the man in charge, bless God, bless his soul, said, uh, that's nonsense. Next question. Ladies and gentlemen, when God's, Jesus says, I'll spit you out, then Jesus says, you're a name, but you're not alive. When Jesus says, unless you repent, remember the height from which you have fallen. You have left your first love. And Jesus says, you have compromised with adultery and idolatry. Ooh, I believe that the question who is able to stand? Who can stand? It's applicable also to the original Presbyterian Church, OPC. It's, it's applicable to me. It is applicable to you in the pattern of world history. Can you imagine the temptations that come our way under the economic horse? under the war horse, under the famine horse, under the death horse, the temptations that we see all over the place. That's sobering, is it not? But the encouragement is that there's an answer. 144,000 an innumerable multitude. Now, ladies and gentlemen, who are the 144,000? And what is the innumerable multitude? Now, the innumerable multitude is defined. They come from all nations and all languages. So those are, that is the church eventually. But how about the 144,000? People say, well, these are the Jews only. First the Jews and then the Gentiles. Now I question that because in chapter 14 we hear again that the Lord talks about Jesus, the Lamb, which is 144,000. And what does the Bible say about them? 
and apparently that is symbolical for the whole church. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, these having redeemed from mankind, from mankind, not from the Jews, as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. They have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They were singing a new song before the throne of the four living creatures and before the elders. The four living creatures are the representative creation, and the four elders are representative of the total church. So the 144,000 redeemed from mankind are apparently not just the Jews. So what are they? Well, they are the elect of God. Portrayed in Old Testament language. Just like James writes to the 12 tribes. Again, Old Testament language to show that the total church is being addressed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what is so amazing about those 12 tribes that Ephraim is missing. And so is Dan. Did you ever notice that? Now, why? Well, I believe that Ephraim and Dan were missing because those were the two tribes that instigated the worship of the golden calves. And what happens when you institute a worship through visible or thinking issues that you worship God in a way that he does not prescribe because the first commandment says there's only one God and the second commandment says there's only one way. Now, what happens if you don't worship God in the proper way? Well, that's what Moses says in Deuteronomy. You did not see God, but you heard him. In other words, Christianity is not a religion of the eye. Hinduism. It is a religion of the ear. Obey. Obedience. Saul, you did not listen. Twice. It's over. Even if you have no golden calf, if you don't listen, it's over. Ephraim, you didn't listen. Dan, you didn't listen. You make people focus on visual realities. And what happened when the Israelites put the golden calf together in the desert? The Bible says they ended up in an immoral orgy of sexuality. Now, this shows that if you make religion, Christianity, into religion of the eye and not of the ear, you are going to go down the tubes and out and drain in every aspect of obedience to God. You are not going to listen to the third commandment, not to the fourth commandment, not to the fifth commandment, not to the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, or tenth, or tenth commandment. You disintegrate when you do not worship the Lord God in the way you should. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that in my estimation is the reason why Ephraim and Dan are not mentioned in the list of 12,000. And that is scary. You remember Jeroboam when the prophet told him and the altar collapsed and he said, grab him and his arm was not able to come back. And eventually his arm did come back but he did not learn a thing. And then Ahab added to it that they began to import the Baals. I promise you, if you don't want to worship the Lord in the way he prescribed, in other words, you listen to his word. You come together on the Lord's day. And you listen to God's word. 
But when you come together on the Lord's day to listen to his word, why do you come in? First of all, to worship him. Well, because the worship of God is in the, in the splendor of holiness. You want to come into the church to be able, become a little bit more holy. Now, sir, uh, forgive me, uh, but you told us that we are sinners. Uh, the Bible tells us that we are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are not wretched sinners, but we are wretched saints. All right? So there's only one time that the Bible calls Christians sinners. And that is in the book of uh, James. Now all those confessions, oh, we are sinners. No! We are saints. Why don't you level? Go to that level. Your saints go back to the blood and you're forgiven. Your saints go back to the word and you'll be holy. That's the difference. Forgive me, but uh, over the many years, I've heard it so often, and when you told me you were happy to see me, I thought, I have a good relationship with you, and I don't think I will be too offensive, all right? Offen but it's the case everywhere, everywhere I go. Oh, we're poor, miserable sinners. Are you born again? Yes, well, are you still a poor, miserable sinner? No, 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 you may be a poor, miserable saint, but you're no longer a poor, miserable sinner, and if you're a poor, miserable sinner, you better be regenerated for the first time. Okay, that is uh, what I would like to share, that when you are going to want to worship God, you must do it in the beauty of, Splendor of holiness according to the Psalms, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And therefore, when you come to church, you want to become a little bit more holy. Now, how many people come to church to be a little bit more holy than when they came out? Now, the Prime Minister of Uganda told me in person that he had stopped going to church. And he said, I stopped going to church because, uh, frankly... I come out as I went in. So it's all useless. Now that is the problem with the preacher. You see, the preacher says, you want to be a little bit more holy? Welcome. Listen to me. And the people can also have the problem. I come to church to soothe me. Uh, don't uh, tell me with exhortations or encouragement how to act because that's not what I came for at the big world. And it's always distresses. I want to have a time of peace in the church. So calm down, calm down, calm down. Well, let me tell you something. If you're born again, you're like Peter, like Paul. And you say, Lord, I stretch forward to get what you called me for. I have not arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, anyone who says in the church, I have arrived, is like the Laodiceans. We have everything. So what in the world is the problem? Jesus. And he says, well, you're poor and blind and wretched and poor and blind and naked. Did you know there were uh, factories for clothing in, uh, uh, in uh, Laodicea? Were gold mines? Did you also know there were pharmaceutical houses there? So they had everything. <laughs> Today's USA, all right? USA Today had everything. We have clothes, we have money, and we have uh, health insurance. So, what, uh, be, 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 and Jesus says, don't you know you're wretched? And that's exactly what Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. And it's exactly what James says, recognize your wretchedness. And it's what I tell to the man in the mirror, you are a wretched saint. Now sometimes wretched is in capital letters and saint is in small letters. Now we must turn it around. It must be wretched in small letters and saint in capital letters. And we want to become more saintly every time we come to church. And that's why you must come to church if you say, well, the first man who came to know Jesus through my ministry in, in, in uh, Sunnyvale, California, OPC, 
He said, I worship God in nature. <laughs> and he was a very fine man. And I read all through Romans with him. And then they left the church after I was finished with the Romans. And then his wife came back uh, six weeks later and said, I've asked you for forgiveness for the Lord and for, for his church and from you. Because I said to myself, if Dr. Henry is correct, my husband is going to go to hell. I don't want to hear it. And I went to another liberal Presbyterian church. And there... Um, we went to Sunday school also there, and my husband said, uh, Honey, after six weeks, if you want to stay here, I'll stay with you. But you get a horizontal message. The man never even cracked open his Bible. If you want to have a message that is vertical, go back. And they came back. And ladies and gentlemen, six weeks later, he said to me, When can I join the church? I said, did something happen? He said, yes, last week my mother came home and to us for a short vacation and she is the sorriest woman on the face of the universe because of all the problems that she faced. And I said, mother, you need Jesus. And I began to spout the book of Romans to my mother. And that's how he was converted, you see. I worship God in nature. That's not the way God portrays it. You're an Ephraimite. You're a Danite. Then you come to church. And when I was in the Netherlands, we would come to church twice when there were two services. 4,000 people, 2,000 in the morning service, the first one, 2,000 in the second morning service because the church could only hold 2,000 people. 2,000 in the first afternoon service, 2,000 in the second afternoon service. And now you come back in the Netherlands and often there's no afternoon service. And if there is one, you can take a can and you shoot and, and you don't touch anybody. Ladies and gentlemen, the 144,000, God's elect. Elijah did not understand that at first. He said, Lord, it's over on Mount Horeb. That's where we started with two and a half million people. And now there's nobody, there's no pulpit left. All the prophets are gone. There's no pew left. People don't want to listen. And I'm the only one left. And if your name is not going to be glorified, if you are no longer the center of this nation, and if your cause has totally collapsed, I don't want to live any longer because I live for your cause. Praise the Lord for an Elijah like that. He was not uh, psychologically dented as some people say. No. He said, Lord, your cause is over. Now when your cause is over, get me out of here. And God says, no, 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 Elijah. Get yourself a successor, number one. And then uh, I am in charge of the whole world. You might as well anoint Haziel, king of uh, the Syrians. And then, uh, Elijah, for your information, there are 7,000 that have never bowed their knees before Baal. And those are the elect, 7,000, not necessarily literally. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what you find here in our text. But no Danites and no Ephraimites. And when I came to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church out of the Netherlands, and we got 100 people in the morning service, we got 20 or 30 in the evening service, I said, what in the world is going on in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? This is the Lord's day, not travel day, not, not study day. It's not Mother's Day, it's not Father's Day, not Children's Day. It is God's Day, the Lord's Day. And the, and the Sabbath is, as somebody, the wedding band of God for His people. I want you to be in my presence. Well, we have other things to do, especially 
on Super, Super Bowl Sunday, okay? And many churches have a party instead of a service on the Lord's Day. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not critical, I'm not judgmental, but I tell you that the 144,000 are God's elect who desire to be holy and to worship God according to his word. Those are the people who are going to last and going to stand in the day of judgment. That is the first part. And then the second part, the Bible says, there are innumerable multitudes. There is not just a few. Now, that is so wonderful because when you read chapter 6, then you say, well, Lord, who can stand? Apparently, there are not too many. No, no, God says. No, 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 no. Do you think I'm, I'm going to fill my heaven with only uh, just a couple of people? No. I'm going to fill my heaven with an innumerable company. And they're going to sing the praises and the, wor and the worship of God. And they let their voices re reverberate throughout the universe. Isn't that beautiful? Also, if you are an evangelist, Lord, you're going to get an innumerable multitude. You might as well give me a few. And I know they're coming. I remember when I was in, in Sunnyvale, California, I said to the Lord, Lord, I've never been used by you in the conversion of anybody. And that is a burden because Jesus says you will do greater works, not works of holiness, not works of, of, um, uh, of, of miracles, but works of conversions. All the commentaries say, well, that can be the only answer. Lord, I have not been used in any way, shape, or form, and you tell me I'll be doing greater works. Where are they? Well, he told me, not verbally, of course. Well, why don't you act like Paul and start knocking on doors? Why don't you move? Do you think I'm going to give them to you as you're sitting, your lazy boy? No, of course not. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do. You gotta move. And you gotta love the suffering. That you have the fellowship of suffering. And that's what I appreciate in your pastor, Brother Mark. That he is like a he's dogged in his determination. And he's willing to suffer. The fellowship of his suffering. Bring it on. The Lord Jesus says, I die for you, you die for me. And unless you die, you will not produce fruit. But if you die, produce much fruit. So that's what I began to understand. And we had a fiery Irish OP evangelist who says, if you, evangelism is part of your sanctification, and if you don't evangelize, God will spew you out of his mouth. Ouch! And when he was finished with his dark eyes, penetrating eyes, fire came out of it, it looks like, Half of my people, they were upset, and they walked out after the service, and the other half, and I was one of them, said, Lord, teach us, teach us, teach us, teach us how to do it. And then he said to me, you will never do it unless I show you how to do it. You've got to be trained. So he took me out. I'll never forget it. And he had a way of doing it, and I adopted much, not the content, but the structure of the presentation. In the last 10 weeks, I did it in, in, uh, in, um, in Chattanooga with the black pastor. I've been after him for 10 years. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a pastor of the Church of the Firstborn. And finally, after 10 years, I said, Alfred, if you don't, if you're not evangelistic, I will never call you anymore the Church of the Firstborn. I'm going to call you the Church of the Stillborn. <laughs> and we loved each other, so he took it. And when I took him out six, seven times, and we had, and had people call in the name of the Lord, he said, Henry, I've never heard anything like that before. What took me so long? <laughs> I thought, what took me so long? <laughs> Ten years. And finally, you know, what took me so long? Not you, but me. So, uh, uh, uh. But now, I'll tell you. 
and his son is now on board. He took me last week to, the, to, uh, to jail, and I shared the gospel with eight inmates, and he said, I've never seen them so alive in listening and responding. I said, now I give you the presentation, and uh, the next time I'll give you a biblical altar call. Do you want to call in the name of the Lord? And ladies and gentlemen, may you take a look at the Apostle Paul. God is not going to put Christians in our lap. We've got to move. And we are going to go after an innumerable multitude. So we know that we are going to be successful in one way or another. It may not be on millions of people, but if you tell me I'll do greater works and you tell me how to do it, Lord, here I am. I'm going to pay the price. Give me converse. The first one took seven months. And then the second and the third and the fourth came more quickly. But I forgot to do one thing. I never told them, parents, the way I put my energy in you, I now want to put your, this same energy in your children. And many of them have fallen by the wayside. But then I have a Ugandan girl. I put my energy in her, adopted from Africa, and she put her energy in her children. And she said to me, every time I think of you, I become more thankful for your ministry in my life. More and more thankful all the time. And although I live in Cincinnati and we haven't seen each other for a long time, although we call, I want to visit you again. And I hope in the end of July, uh, August when I preach for the OPC in French Creek, Pennsylvania, she wants to be there as well. And we'll see the glory that comes through <coughs> as part of the innumerable multitude. And we go after that innumerable multitude. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud, loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. You know what that means? I did not regenerate myself. I did not justify myself. I did not sanctify myself. I am responsible for it, Jere Ezekiel says. Get yourself a new heart, get yourself a new past, get yourself a new life. I'm responsible for it, but I am not able to do it unless you bring, me, bring it to me. Unless you regenerate me, unless you justified me, unless you sanctify me. I must do it. I'm responsible, but I cannot do it. I'm not able. And as I cast myself upon you, for you please to give it to me. And you don't even have to give it to me. And the innumerable multitude got the gift. And they recognized you have no good will in regeneration. You have no good works in justification. And you have no good efforts in sanctification. If you have good work, will, and regeneration, you're a good old Arminian. If you have good works in justification, you're a good old Roman Catholic. But if you have good efforts in your sanctification, you're often a good old Presbyterian. Ah, give it a stiff upper lip, you know what I mean? No, no. I knock on the door. Get me in. Fellowship. And then you will blossom out, Laodiceans. Awesome. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne. And the four creatures, and they fell on their faces. Ah, they fell on their faces. Why? In utter gratitude and thankfulness. I preached once in Covenant College many, many years ago. I said, have you ever fallen on your face before the Lord? in the conjun conjunction with uh, John in the first chapter. And uh, two young men came up to me and said, that was gross. It was in the middle of the student rebellion. You don't fall on your face, you rebel. <laughs> and three days later, I preached some more. I didn't know what to do. I said, oh, my, my, my. I'm going to go home with this. 
but I didn't, and I preached on Ezekiel. You have to have a new heart, you have to have a new righteousness, you have a new holiness. Three consecutive messages, and in the last message, those two boys came up to me, and they said, will you please forgive us, because we were barking upon the wrong tree. Ladies and gentlemen, they were willing to fall on their faces before the Lord at that time. And they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. And then the one said, Who are they? Well, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, that is a difficult issue, but I cannot go into, at length into it. That is not... People say, well, there's going to be a, trans a tribulation way in the future. Well, if that is the case, then this, these chapters don't apply to us. Some people believe that everything in the book of Revelation is about the past. They call it preterism. Other people believe that it's all about the future. They call it futurism. And then somebody groaned, Lord, save the book of Revelation from the prison of the past and the prison of the future. I do not believe in a past historical and a future historical. There's things about the past. There are things about the future. But a principal historical in, uh, um, uh, interpretation that there are principles in the Word of God that apply to everybody. We all live under the four horses. We all have to face the fact that Jesus is coming back. We all recognize the elect 144,000. We all recognize the innumerable multitude. That is applicable to us today, ladies and gentlemen. And there is going to be tribulation. Whenever we do it, because if we want to live holy lives, we are going to get tribulation. So that, in my estimation, is what the Bible says. There is going to be tribulation if you want to be godly. And sometimes tribulation is in the family. As Jesus says, a mother and a father, uh, children, they, they are going to fight you because they don't belong. That's why it is good. That's why I always tell people, if you want to prevent that, you better marry properly and you better evangelize your children properly so you don't get that fight in, in your family, ladies and gentlemen. And they wash their robes made of white in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. Now, that is not the total gospel because I believe in a systematic theology. The blood of the Lamb does not regenerate you. The cross of the Lamb regenerates you, Romans 6. The blood of the Lamb justifies you and uh, the death of the Lamb produces uh, your holiness, according to the Word. Uh, but, but here it is beautiful, it is that centerpiece. It's not a starting piece of regeneration. It's not a crowning piece of sanctification. But here you have the centerpiece of justification. They wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they have white robes. But they have the crowning piece also. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's just like a woman who gives a baby. Uh, that's what Jesus says, and that's what my wife says. It's painful, right? If mothers, if you have babies, it's painful. But what if when the baby is born? Jesus says, you forgot the pain. Now, I think that Jesus is right because if Jesus was wrong, women would not have more than one child. <laughs> All right? You see? So, so I think uh, and the, you can smile. You can say, yes, the pain is forgotten. You know, when I have a man or a young woman, a young man or a young woman, or anyone come to know Jesus, and I've been after them, after them, after them, after them, I forgot all the pain that I experienced in going after them. As a general in the Ugandan army, every time that we got to, to dinner, he was late three or three hours, four hours at a time. 
He would always show up, but you know, he was a big man and I'm a little peon. I said one time, I'm not gonna do it anymore, forget it. And he comes in with a smile and said, next time I pay. He said, all right. And if I had stopped, I would never have met his son. His son would never have come to know Jesus. When he died, I would not have buried him. And when I buried him with the gospel, the commanding general, the Ugandan army would never have talked to me. And all of a sudden, I recognized something. Stick it out, 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 stick it out. And that is what uh, Ecclesiastes says. You throw it, your seed on the waters and eventually it will come back and produce fruit. So there will be tears. The tears of defeat will be tears that lead to victory. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I told you I would say a few things about the next section in the panel. Very few. But the Bible says that not only the pattern of the horses, now there is also the pattern of the judgments. Not just in the beginning, not just at the end, but throughout our world history. Save the book of Revelation from imprisonment in the past and from imprisonment in the future. When I look at this world, I see the judgments on the earth, in the heavens, on the waters, in the rivers, the seas, everywhere. People are, millions of people are being killed. And you say, well, I never saw a star coming, from, coming down from heaven. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is symbolical. And I can prove that because when we talk about Satan, in the 12th chapter, he took one-third of the stars and he wiped them out. Now, when Jesus was born, were there any less stars? No. Symbolical that his power was so fast. He told Caesar Augustus, count everybody, number everybody. And Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. You see, and there was no room in the end. The stars were swept out of the heavens. So that's not literal. And so when you read those judgments, that's not literal. Don't look at the literality and say it doesn't happen. Look at the Word of God and says, however you want it, Lord, it is happening today even if we don't see it in terms of stars, it's happening today and your eyes are opened. And how then is the church going to respond in the midst of the judgments of this world? Second World War, First World War, Ebola, you name it, you name it, you name it. And then in the 11th chapter, very, very clear, the two witnesses are going to preach the word. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not talking about this element. I may be able to do it in the future if I'm getting back here. But let me tell you, who can stand the, ten, the elect and it's an innumerable multitude? And they love holiness. You think you're going to serve God forever in heaven if you don't want to serve God here on earth? Impossible. And the crowning piece of holiness. Now, what must we do in the midst of the judgments? Preach the word. Make disciples. And teach them to observe whatever God has commanded. That is the only two commands that God gives us. Do it. Do it. Now when Satan at the end of a thousand years is able to get all the nations behind him. Today the nations are no longer, don't no longer belong to him. They belong to Jesus. And Jesus says, you go into them, you make disciples, and you teach them to observe. But at the end of the thousand years, which is also symbolical, and you don't want to listen, God says, I'm going to give you all back to Satan, and he can bundle you together in a great fight against my people. Maybe a month or so, but I'll consume you with the breath of your mouth. 
And it's exactly what happened in chapter 11. The two witnesses are killed for three and a half days. There comes a time at the end time that when God gives all the people of all the nations who don't want to listen, he's giving them back to Satan. And they will kill the church and ministry for a little while and everybody will be happy. We got rid of them. And after three and a half days, they're going to come back to life. Because Jesus is going to consume the enemy with the breath of his mouth. So what is uh, the issue here today? A tremendous encouragement. There are people who are going to stand. 144,000. God's elect. An innumerable multitude. They have washed themselves white in the blood of the Lamb. They want to serve God day and night in His temple like the 144,000. They don't, they are virgins. They want to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But in the meantime, when the judgment is there, you better, OPC, you better, Henry, you better, everybody, you better start following my command. Make disciples and teach them to observe whatever God has commanded. Whatever the cost. There's going to be tribulation in that. But all the tears will be wiped away from the faces. Now, of course, the question is, how do you do that? And I'm going to say only one or two things. You've got to be trained. That's why we go to Uganda and have people with us and train them. And we showed them this is the message, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the Holy Spirit. This is what you must know. And now this is how you must do it as the fire evangelist in the northern California Presbytery took me out from door to door to show it. And ladies and gentlemen, this applies to everybody. Not just to a few evangelists, but to everybody. Everybody must become a soldier of the army of God and move, move, move. And it's my hope and prayer that when I write on this or when I talk to people, people will respond and not respond like half of my congregation in California. They just despised that exhortation. Ah! But I remember that one of the brothers who had his thumbs down when God broke his heart. He became my best friend, my best prayer warrior friend. And we moved together, you see. So my message is one of encouragement and one also of exhortation. Ex encouragement, there are people going to stand and a, and a message of exhortation, move. And when you are in tribulation, and when you're in distress because you move, you're like David, move. And I promise you, when you finally end up there, as one of my buddies said, God will take his hanky out of his pocket and personally wipe the tears from our eyes. I can't wait for God himself to do that. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Let me pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I was asked to preach on this passage, and I know that my heart took to the, to the request because it's such a beautiful chapter in the midst of the book of Revelation. But we can never really understand it if we do not understand it in its context. And I thank you for the eyes of the people who are listening very, very carefully to the exposition of God's Word. I ask you, Lord, that this will become a powerful church through the ministry of my brother Mark and others, that they will go out and that you, O oh God, will regenerate people and that you, O oh God, will sanctify people. And this church may, Lord, be a powerhouse for the Lord Jesus in this part of the world. It may not look that way at this time, but Lord, we believe there's going to be an innumerable multitude. 
And we can say to you, Lord, if we do what you tell us to do, we believe that you are going to bless us. If we are going to die, we are going to get fruit. So, Lord, we enjoy, we, we uh, rejoice in the fellowship of suffering through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice even in becoming like dead people for the Lord Jesus in, uh, as we go and we take up our cross. But we know that after the cross will be the crown. And we ask you, Lord, that you will give us both and that this church will be used by you in a powerful way in the midst of this world. For we ask it in Jesus' name, also for the pastor and the people, Lord, give them, give them the joy of the Lord in, in, the, in the light of the passages that we talked about this evening. Bless us now and dismiss us with your benediction in Jesus' name. Amen.